Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. My guest is Dr. Bjorn Lomborg. He's the author of False Alarm, and uh, he's the head of the Consensus Center Think Tank in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, rated among the best think tanks in the world, with seven Nobel laureates contributing. Dr. Lomborg was also named to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. And uh, he does support uh, human-induced global warming. Now, the book is called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Many Others. And what I found interesting, and I found this on Dr. Lomborg's uh, Twitter feed this morning, is uh, not only does his book generate controversy, and his books normally do, um, I, I know he'd agree with that, but particularly in the New York Times, Dr. Lomborg and Professor Joseph Stiglitz, who's a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics, are facing off over false alarm. Dr. Lomborg, good to have you with us. How are you doing? Hey, Roy. It's good to be back, and uh, I'm doing well. I hope you well too. Indeed, that's uh, that's no longer a throwaway question. That's a, a relevant question in conversations these days. I know. Uh, what's going on between you and uh, Joseph Stiglitz of Columbia University? <laughs> well, so uh, look, right. I wrote a book, which I think is uh, it's it's my best book, really, uh, talking about how we fix climate change smartly. Uh, that requires us to stop being scared witless, which many of us are. Uh, and start thinking about this issue smartly. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people really don't want to give up on this it's-the-end-of-the-world sense of, of climate, and Joe Stiglitz is one of them. Uh, so he actually uh, he, he uh, promised New York Times, even before he'd read the book, that he was going to give it a bad review uh, because he doesn't want anyone to believe that this is anything but a catastrophe, and hence humankind has to spend everything and the kitchen sink on fixing the problem of climate change. That's not just wrong. It's also a way to make sure that we're wasting trillions and hurting a lot of other people because there are lots of other problems in the world. And you've said this to us many times on this program, and I remember speaking with you immediately prior to the Paris uh, conference in 2015 and immediately following, and you pointed out how much money was going to have to be spent globally, trillions or maybe hundreds of trillions of dollars over time to accomplish essentially nothing. And yet when I look at your book, uh, the very beginning I see uh, uh, a sign that is uh, held by a child or it's I, there's no, I didn't see a picture of the child. I saw the sign. You'll die of old age. I'll die of climate change. That's frightening. It is. And it's frightening that so many, both young people and really everyone, are so afraid. So uh, a recent study from uh, a survey from Washington Post shows that 57% of all young people are now afraid of climate change. And 82% uh, fear, sadness, and anger on the environment. This is just for young people. And for adults across the world, uh, a recent survey showed that 48% believe that it's likely global warming will lead to the extinction of the human race. The, this is serious. This is really, everyone seems to believe this is the end of the world. But just notice what the UN Climate Panel actually tells us. They tell us that in the 2050s, 70s, so about 50 years from now, the impact of global warming will be equivalent to each one of us being somewhere between 0.2 and 2% poor. Remember, 
by then will be much richer. The UN actually estimate will be 2.63 times richer uh, in 2075. So instead of being 2.63 times richer, we'll only be 2.56 times richer. That's a problem, but it's certainly not the end of the world. Uh, in the book, uh, you have sections, obviously, and chapters, and uh, I, I was reading Climate of Fear. Why do we get climate change so wrong? Well, why do we, and how do we most significantly get it wrong, Dr. Lomborg? Well, remember, media loves bad news more than anything else, and it's very, very easy to get bad news from climate change. So take a recent uh, a headline in, in Washington Post and across really uh, the whole North American continent, really around the world, saying that because of global warming, you're going to get sea level rise, which is absolutely true. And that sea level rise will necessitate 187 million people having to move by the end of the century because they can no longer be there because of water. Uh, so that's 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 more than twice the population of Canada. Yeah, that that's really terrible. But it's also phenomenally wrong because it assumes that nobody does anything the next 80 years. Basically, everyone just sits there, watch the water lap up over their uh, knees and eventually hips, and eventually they drown or have to move. But, of course, real people don't actually act that way. We don't do nothing. We actually adapt. And the very same scientific article that gives us the number of 187 million if we don't adapt also says if we do adapt, the total number of people who will have to move by the end of the century is about 300,000 people. So 600 times less. Now, 187 million people, that's a catastrophe. 300,000 people, that's half the number of people that move out of the state of California every year. We can certainly handle that on a global level. And again, it underscores the point. Global warming is a problem. But it's not the end of the world. And when we constantly are being told these stories one-sidedly with no adaptation, yes, it makes for great copy, but it's not good information. Who needs to know what's going to happen if we don't do anything when we know we're going to make sensible adaptations? Yeah, that 187 million is closer to five times the population of Canada than it is two times the population of Canada. Now, when I talk to people about climate change, and it does come up, and and I get challenged because I look for numbers, I look for the truth, I, that's what I do. Uh, but I get challenged by people say who say, well, you just don't believe, you're a skeptic. I say, well, it's my job to be skeptical about things, to ask questions. If I don't, then I'm just a follower. But what I hear repeatedly is, look, we don't need fossil fuels. For example, in this country as well, I hear people say, we don't need the oil industry. We don't need the conventional energy industry, which is not true. But that's that's what I hear time and again. And I also hear that globally we are just about ready to operate on solar and wind. What's the truth on that? Yeah, that's spectacularly misleading. Uh, remember, what really drove us out of poverty, what gave us the Industrial Revolution, was the incredibly easy access to vast amounts of energy. It's basically that we don't do the hard, uh, back-breaking work, but that energy does it for us, and that's mostly been fossil fuels. But people are absolutely saying, oh, we're just about on the cusp of a of, of revolution. We're going uh, to uh, green energy. But the reality is, if you look over uh, over the last couple hundred years, we used to spend about 
94% of all our energy came from renewables uh, back in 1800. Uh, for the last 50 years, that number has been somewhere between 13 and 14%, and it stayed stable there. And even by 2040, we estimate we'll get perhaps 16 to 20% of our energy from renewables. No, we will still get the vast majority of our energy, even in 20 years, from fossil fuels. So when people tell you, oh, we're going all solar and wind, no, actually, solar and wind contributes, according to the International Energy Agency, just over 1% of global energy. It is not, as people like to believe, taking over the world. It is a tiny player, and it will probably still be a tiny player by 2040 when the International Energy Agency estimates it will be less than 5% of all energy. Remember, after we've spent about $5 trillion to subsidize more solar and wind. Yeah, and I'm looking at a quote uh, from uh, James Hansen, who um, is Al Gore's uh, number one advisor, and uh, Dr. Hansen said, suggesting that renewables will let us phase rapidly off fossil fuels in the United States, China, India, or the world as a whole, is almost the equivalent of believing in the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. That's from James Hansen. So when you have that, when you have you, and you you support human-induced global warming, you say it's going on. Your your think tank is rated among the very best in the world. You were uh, included in the list of the 100 most influential people by Time magazine globally. So why are you having so much difficulty? Um, or let me put it this way: Why do you why do your books create such pushback and controversy? Huh. Well, fundamentally, because we seem to all have decided that global warming is not just a problem like many other problems, but it's the end of the world. As Joe Biden says, it's an existential crisis. And of course, if then somebody comes and says, well, that's actually not what the evidence says, a lot of people get really upset. And of course, there's also a lot of money involved in this. Uh, but the, the, the funny thing is, it's again, it's not me saying this. I'm simply quoting the UN climate panel. I'm quoting the only economist, only climate economist to ever get the Nobel Prize, uh, 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 Professor Nordhaus from Yale University. And, and you started off with uh, talking about how uh, Stiglitz wrote in, in New York Times. Stiglitz is a Nobel Prize winning economist in, uh, uh, in uh, information economics, basically things like selling and, and uh, buying used cars, for instance. And he is telling us, no, 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 the Nobel economist who actually knows about climate economics doesn't know this, uh, uh, you know, anything, doesn't know what he's talking about. And this is what happens when we have a situation where so many people have just decided global warming is a big issue. No, it is a moderate issue. It's probably three or four percent uh, by the end of the century if we don't do anything. This is what the UN climate panel tells us. This is what climate economics tells us. It is a moderate problem, but we have made it into the world's biggest problem. That both makes us waste lots of resources, and it also makes us forget all the other problems in the world, like lack of good health, as we've certainly seen with the pandemic, uh, but also lack of good education, lack of jobs, lack of nutrition, many other problems that we also have a duty to fix. Yeah. Dr. Lomborg, when it comes to, uh, to, to climate change and, uh, and the Paris Agreement, 
Let's talk about, please, about the, the, the amounts of money that are involved in pursuing what the Paris Agreement is calling for and what that money will actually accomplish and what it won't accomplish under the heading in your book, Why the Paris Agreement is Failing. Yeah, so if we're going to fix climate change, we first need to realize all the things that we're doing that don't work. Uh, and the Paris Agreement is the latest agreement that we've all signed up to. Everyone feels very excited about it. But in reality, it'll fix very little of the problem. So if we continue to actually do the Paris Agreement throughout the entire century, we will reduce temperatures by the end of the century by 0.17 degrees centigrade. So you won't be able to measure the difference in 100 years. Yet the cost you will definitely be able to measure. Uh, we estimate the cost will probably be somewhere between one and two trillion U.S. dollars every year for the rest of the century. So after spending, say, 80 trillion to 100 trillion dollars, we'll have achieved virtually nothing. That, uh, surprisingly, turns out to be a pretty poor deal. Every dollar you spend, you will avoid about 11 cents of climate damage. That's a bad way to spend money. If you took that money and you applied it to some of the other issues and problems that the world is dealing with and facing, and one of them is hunger, um, one of them is education, you mentioned them a few minutes ago, if you took that particular money and you applied it, or a significant portion of it, to the issues, the other issues the world is facing, how well would we benefit? Oh, you would be able to fix all the major problems in the world and still have money left over. Just to give you a sense of proportion, uh, fixing perhaps the biggest issue in the world, namely poverty, would cost less than a tenth of what we're going to be paying for uh, the, uh, the Paris Agreement. Uh, fixing many other problems like uh, tuberculosis or HIV uh, AIDS, uh, two of the big uh, infectious diseases, would probably cost in the order of $10 billion, so a one hundredth of the cost each. So there's lots and lots of other things we could fix. Now, again, uh, Roy, I'm not saying we should not spend anything on climate, but we should spend it smartly so that we have money left over to fix all the other problems of the world. And of course, also all the problems that we have individually in our own countries, because I'm sure, as, as in Denmark and many other places, Canada also needs to spend more on its health care and more on its infrastructure and all these other issues. So, again, let's not waste resources just because we're scared witless. Let's spend them smartly and, of course, also actually fix climate. And what do you say to the people who will, with all the conviction in the world, tell you that we have maybe 10 or 12 years left, period? Well, well, I mean, first of all, they should know where that come from. Uh, so, basically, this came from uh, uh, the politicians after having promised to uh, uh, limit temperature rises in Paris to 1.5 degrees, they figured, oh, wait, we might want to ask, actually ask someone how we're going to achieve that. And so they asked the IPC, and they came out with a report in 2018 where they said, if you want to reach the almost impossible target of 1.5 degrees, you have to do the almost impossible. That's not very surprising, but it's also not very informative. They simply told us, you have just 10 years or to 2030, to fix it if you want to get to 1.5 degrees. But the reality is we're not going to make it. It's a little bit like, imagine if politicians had promised we're all going to go to Mars, uh, and then they asked NASA, 
how are we actually going to do it? NASA would say, well, look, it's almost impossible. But if you want to do it, you have to pay pretty much everything you've got and get us uh, for, you know, in order for us to be able to take everyone to, uh, to, uh, uh, to Mars. It does not mean that we should do it. It simply means the UN Climate Panel has answered a very specific question. What will it take to get us to 1.5 degrees? And they said, you almost can't do it. And as you say, uh, you agree that climate is changing, that uh, humans have had an impact and do have an impact on uh, on climate. But again, there's a finite amount of money to be spent, and there are uh, more uh, intelligent ways to spend that money, as the case that your book makes, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Cost Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Many Others. Dr. Lombard, good talking to you again. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.